Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. At war, a note of caution from the U.S. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. As Israeli forces pound Gaza. We are increasing pressure on Hamas every hour, every day. What's his war plan? Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu joins me live for his first CNN interview since Hamas's terror attack inside Israel. Then U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is here. Plus, the right to vote. Voters send Republicans another message on abortion rights. How will the GOP adapt? We have to address this issue. I'll ask the chairwoman of the Republican Party, Ronna McDaniel, ahead. And it's complicated. A new Democratic headache. I will not be running for re-election. But will he run for president? And what does an already crowded third-party presidential lane mean for a Biden re-election? Former Obama senior advisor David Axelrod and former Republican Governor Larry Hogan join me ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the State of Our Union is watching global tensions rise even further. This morning, attention in the Middle East is focused on worsening humanitarian crises in Gaza as Israel faces growing pressure to take civilians more into consideration as it prosecutes its war against the terrorist group Hamas following its barbaric October 7th attacks on Israeli civilians. At Gaza's Al-Shifa Hospital, doctors tell CNN the outlook for patients there becomes more desperate by the hour. Low on food, water and fuel and largely without power amid heavy fighting in the area. This morning, Israel said it opened a self-evacuation corridor from the medical center for people to move south. The civilian crisis has prompted a shift in approach by the Biden administration, which says too many Palestinians have died in the conflict. While Israel yesterday, uh, what we saw there were families of hostages taken by Hamas, demanding that they be more prioritized. The rescue comes soon. Joining me now is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Sir, thank you so much for joining me. Let's start with what's happening at that hospital. Israeli forces have said that they are engaged in intense fighting around Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest medical facility in Gaza. I know that you say that the hospital sits on top of a Hamas command and control center, but of course there are also patients, civilians sheltering in that complex getting treatment. So how do you intend to go after Hamas without putting sick and injured civilians in that hospital at more risk than they already are? Well, we've called to evacuate all the patients from that hospital. And in fact, uh, 100 or so have already been evacuated. I've called for field hospitals. The French president has sent a floating hospital ship. I've asked the uh, Emirates to uh, send a field hospital. They have, uh, and other countries have done the same. I expect the UN to build this. So there's no reason why we just can't take the patients out of there. Uh, instead of letting Hamas use it as a command center for terrorism, 
for the rockets that they fire against Israel, for the terror tunnels that they use to kill Israeli civilians. Remember, uh, Dana, let's keep this in focus. Just imagine what would happen if the United States were attacked viciously by 29-11s, 20, that's the proportionate number, 50,000 Americans killed, 10,000 Americans held hostage, including babies, elderly, women, children, uh, 10,000 rockets falling on your, your cities. That's the number of rockets that are falling all the time on our cities, may fall during this interview, in fact, and we'll have to go to a shelter. That's what's happening. So what would America do? It would take all its force and go after these killers. And what if these killers embed themselves in hospitals, in schools, in UN facilities? You do everything in your power to get the civilians out, which is what right. we're doing. We call them to leave. But you certainly wouldn't give immunity to the terrorists. So we're obviously treading carefully when it comes to hospitals, but we're also not going to give immunity to the terrorists. And so far, even though Hamas has tried to prevent the civilians from leaving, uh, hundreds of thousands so just, have left, sometimes having to go through Hamas gunpoints and gunfire just to be that clear, wants to sir. keep them in harm's way. Just to be clear, sir, sir. Israel will aid, help these civilians who are quite sick and inside these hospitals come out not just in Al-Shifa, but there are other hospitals uh, where this is happening. Yes. Yes, we're telling them to leave. And in telling fact, them or helping them? Safe, helping them by creating safe corridors. So we have designated routes to a safe zone south of Gaza City where there's no uh, fighting. And we're telling them, go ahead, move. And by the way, 70,000 have moved three days ago. I think 50,000 moved yesterday. More will move today. We want all the civilians to be removed out of harm's way, and Hamas is doing everything in their power to keep them in harm's way. Do you they believe, put missiles below. Yes, go ahead. Do you believe ahead. that there are hostages below that hospital, Israeli or American hostages? Well, I'm not going to go into uh, the intelligence picture we have, but, uh, you know, this, this, there's been this vicious thing. They take hostages. Imagine a baby is, is held hostage. Who takes a baby hostage? Yeah, I don't know if you have children, Donna. I'm sure your camera crew has them. We all have children. What is this taking children hostages, threatening to kill them? I mean, this is savagery of the highest order. So obviously, we're doing everything in our power to achieve two things. One, destroy Hamas, because without it, none of us have a future. And it's not only our war, it's your war too. It's the battle of civilization against barbarism. And if we don't win here... This scourge will, will pass. The Middle East will, will pass to other places. Yeah. Middle East will fall. Europe is next. You'll be next. And I, but it's the, the first goal is to d destroy Hamas. And the second goal is to bring back our hostages. We're trying to do both. Yeah. So those are completely understandable goals, goals that the United States uh, very much supports. Understanding that Hamas is a barbaric terrorist organization. But Israel is not Hamas. And the United States also makes very clear that democracies have to do better. Uh, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, said uh, that far too many Palestinian civilians have been killed. What is your response to that? I think any civilian uh, loss is a tragedy. And it should, the blame should be placed squarely on Hamas because it prevents them from leaving the war zone. Sometimes at gunpoint, it fired on the safe zone and the safe corridor that we uh, enacted the other day to prevent Palestinians from leaving harm's way. It puts rockets inside uh, schools, hospitals. It has tunnels below children's beds. I mean, this is what we're dealing with. Absolutely. So obviously we but can't it, give them immunity. But because Israel isn't Hamas, 
Is Israel doing everything possible to take that into consideration? Yes, yes, Donna, and more than that. And more than that. We're trying to minimize civilian casualties. As a result of our ground action, I think the number of civilian casualties is actually being reduced because people are heeding our calls to leave the area and defying Hamas's attempt to keep them there. Uh, and we'll do everything in our power to do that. But, you know, the one example I could give you is this. Look, these savages, they perpetrated the worst horrors on Jews since the Holocaust. The German Chancellor Schultz called them the new Nazis. Well, look at the old Nazis. The Allies were attacked by Hitler, and so they invaded France and then Germany. And when they did that, they went into the cities. They had to fight the German army that was often embedded in civilian in the, in the cities, yeah. in civilian neighborhoods. And many civilians were killed. So who was the blame laid on to? Did they say, well, the Nazis are war, the Allies are wrong, the Allies should stop fighting? Or they said, look, use force as judiciously as you can, mm -hmm. But don't give the Nazis any refuge. Defeat the Nazis, which is what we're doing. Prime Minister. We're using force in the most judicious way, but we have to defeat these new Nazis, and we will, for our sake, for your sake, too. I want to ask about the hostages. Thousands of Israelis, including families of hostages, rallied this weekend right across the street from where you are right now. They're very frustrated that they're not getting more information from you on where their loved ones are, believe that... Uh, the government, your government is not doing enough to get them back. What do you say to them? It's understandable. They're under tremendous distress. They're under just torture. Uh, you can imagine that. You have your, your, your father, your, your, your husband, your son, your daughter taken by these savages. Are you doing uh, enough? And held it. Uh, you know, we're doing everything we can around the clock, and I can't, you know, talk about it. I personally met with uh, the hostage uh, families. Uh, families of hostages several times, and it's it just tears your heart out. But yes, we're doing uh, everything and many things that I can't say here, obviously. But we, this is one of our two uh, war goals. I mean, one is to destroy Hamas, and the second is to bring back our hostages, and we'll do everything we can. And we think the entire world should join us. Demand from the Red Cross that it demand visits to the hostages. Demand the unconditional release of the hostages. Say that this is barbarism that is unaccepted. Unacceptable. I'd like to see the UN. I'd like to see the UN Secretary General, who basically laid the blame on Israel, laid the blame on these savages. They demand that they obey international law because Israel is fighting according to international Sir, law. The Israeli army is doing an exemplary job trying to minimize secure, uh, civilian casualties and maximize uh, terrorist uh, casualties. But we need the international community not to give sucker support and moral support and legitimacy to sheer evil that Hamas represents. Support Israel, attack Hamas. Prime Minister Netanyahu, the, uh, one of the questions right now is when it comes to hostages, is whether there can be a negotiation that work towards, works towards a deal to free large groups of hostages in exchange for a sustained days-long pause in fighting. Is that acceptable to you? And if so, how long of a pause would Israel be willing to allow? I said that we're going to pursue the battle to destroy Hamas to its end. But I also said that the only ceasefire that we would consider uh, is one in which we have our hostages released. Uh, and that remains true. doesn't mean that we can't give a humanitarian pause for a few hours in a, in a place, a specific time and place where we want to have a humanitarian corridor and have the people leave safely. We've done that 
and uh, hundreds of thousands have left the fighting so zone. So how long of a pause uh, would fashion. you be willing to support? Well, so far we've dealt with a few hours. If you're talking about a ceasefire, well, I'm not going to get into no, that. No, I'm not talking but, about uh, a ceasefire. Just a, a longer pause, days, for example. That's not, a, that's not a pause. If you're talking about stopping the fighting, that's exactly what Hamas wants. Hamas wants an endless series of pauses that basically dissipate the battle against them. It's like the Germans after Normandy. You know, they say, okay, let's have a ceasefire. You guys, you know, hold off. Uh, let us replenish our supplies. Let us get out of our terror tunnels. Let us uh, rearm ourselves and so on. Obviously, we're not going to do that. The U.S. But says in, that in you order need to a- have In order to have a ceasefire of any uh, 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 ceasefire in the entire area, that will require the release of our hostages. The U.S. says that you need an extended pause in order to get the hostages out. You, do you not yeah, well, believe that as well? Oh, well, we don't. We don't disagree with that, uh, but we need to get our hostages out. Okay. The, the U.S. also says that any post-war plan for Gaza must include Palestinian-led governance and Gaza unified with the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. You appeared to reject that yesterday. You said Israel will not accept a, quote, civilian authority there that educates its children to hate Israel. So I just want to be clear. Are you saying that Israel would not accept giving control of Gaza over to the Palestinian Authority after the war? First, the first thing we have to do is uh, destroy Hamas, because otherwise they'll do it again and again and again, and they've said so. So we'll destroy Hamas. The second thing we have to understand is that there has to be an overriding and overreaching Israeli military envelope, because we've seen any place that we leave, uh, we just, you know, exit, give it to some other force. Very soon terrorism resurges, so we've achieved nothing. The third thing we have to understand is that a civilian authority has to cooperate in two goals. One is to demilitarize Gaza, and the second is to de-radicalize Gaza. And I have to say that the Palestinian Authority has uh, unfortunately failed on both counts. Uh, they don't demilitarize uh, the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. We have to do it. We have to go in and fight the terrorists. They don't de-radicalize. They teach our children the hatred of Israel. They do pay for slay. They pay for terrorist murderers and their families. The more Jews they kill, the more they pay. Uh, they uh, they uh, uh, refuse to this day, 36 days after this savagery, to uh, uh, condemn uh, so if what, not the PA, what Hamas then who? did on November 7th. Sorry? If not the PA, well, then it has to be a There has to be a reconstructed civilian authority. There has to be something else. Otherwise, we're just falling into that same uh, rabbit hole. And we're going to have the same result. Remember, the PA was already in Gaza. When Israel left Gaza, it handed the keys over to the PA. And what happened? Within a very short time, Hamas took over, kicked them out. They weren't willing to fight Hamas. They're still not willing to fight Hamas. So you have to have some kind of authority, civilian uh, Palestinian authority, that is willing to fight the terrorists and educating, and importantly, must educate their children for a future of peace, peace, cooperation, prosperity, cooperation with Israel, not the annihilation of Israel. And so far, that hasn't happened. The burden of proof is on the PA, and they failed every single count. I say that regrettably, but honestly, we have to be realistic about what we expect. We can't fall back on formulas that failed. We have to succeed, to succeed, to give Gaza a better future. Let's not bring it to a failed past. Let's create a different reality there. Prime Minister Netanyahu, before I let you go, I, uh, I know you've been asked this several times, but I have had 
multiple people inside Israel reach out to me knowing that I was going to interview you and say the one thing they want to hear from you is that you take personal responsibility for failing to prevent the October 7th attacks and protecting your people. I know you say the time for that will come after the war. Why won't you take responsibility now? I've already addressed that many times. And I said this whole question will be addressed after the war. Just as people would ask, well, did people ask Franklin Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor that question? Did people ask George Bush after the surprise attack of November 11th? Look, it's a question that needs to be asked. I think those questions questions were asked. asked. And I've said, and I've said, I've said that one one thing that is important is, and I've said, we're going to answer all these questions, including me. I'm going to be asked tough questions. Right now, I think what we have to do is unite the country for one purpose, one purpose alone, and that is to achieve victory. That's what I did. We formed a unity government uh, where the country is united as never before, and I think that's what we have to pursue. And what the people expect me to do right now is two things. One, achieve this victory and bring the hostages back, and second, assure that Gaza never becomes And two Israelis who are disappointed that you still won't take responsibility, you say? Well, I said that I'm going to answer all the questions that are required, including the questions of responsibility. There'll be enough time for that after the war. Let's focus on victory. That's my responsibility now. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you, Donna. And up next, as we've talked about a word of caution this week from the U.S. to Israel, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will be here. And also coming up, how much could a third-party candidate hurt Joe Biden's chances for re-election? David Axelrod and Larry Hogan will be here ahead. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to State of the Union. A notable shift this week from the U.S. in its approach to America's close ally, Israel. At the White House, President Biden expressed frustration over Israel's resistance to implementing humanitarian pauses inside Gaza. And overseas, the U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken said, quote, far too many Palestinians have been killed and more needed to be done to keep civilians safe. Here with me now is President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. Thank you so much for being here this morning. I just want to be clear. Does Israel need to do more to limit civilian casualties? 
Well, first, Dana, every loss of innocent life, Palestinian, Israeli, anyone, is a tragedy, every single one. And we grieve for those uh, who have been lost, those innocent lives who have been lost. At the same time, what Israel is facing is a terrorist enemy who hides among civilians, who uses civilians as human shields. And so it has an added burden of trying to prosecute this campaign against that terrorist group uh, while distinguishing between terrorists and innocent civilians. And that doesn't lessen its responsibility to operate according to the rules of war. And we have continued to make that point both publicly and privately, and we will continue to do so as we go forward. Is Israel operating according to the rules of war? Well, Dana, I'm not going to sit here and play judge or jury on that question. What I'm going to do is state the principle of the United States on this issue which is straightforward. Israel has a right, indeed a responsibility, to defend itself against a terrorist group that just in the last couple of weeks has come out and said that it would like to repeat October 7th over and over again until Israel no longer exists. A Hamas spokesman on the front page of the New York Times said the entire objective of the group is permanent state of war with Israel. And so that is what Israel is up against. At the same time, as I have said, and as President Biden and Secretary Blinken have said, we are democracies. And as democracies, we have to be different and we have to abide by the rules of war. We have to do our utmost to protect innocent civilians. And that means being targeted and careful in military operations to try to reduce and to try to avoid any loss of civilian life. On that note, Israel says its forces are engaged in intense fighting around the Al-Shifa hospital, the largest in Gaza. Doctors Without Borders says there are some 600 patients, including infants, in that hospital with no food, water or electricity. Now, Israel says that beneath that hospital is a major Hamas command and control center. First of all, is that the U.S. understanding? Well, Dan, I'm afraid I can't get into intelligence matters, but you can see even from open source reporting that Hamas does use hospitals, along with a lot of other civilian facilities, for command and control, for storing weapons, for housing its fighters. And so without getting into this specific hospital or that specific claim, this is Hamas's track record, both historically and in this conflict. Well, it, Israel says and again, that it that is. that puts an added burden on Israel. Israel says that Hamas is using this hospital uh, as a place to control and command, command and control their terrorist activities. What is the U.S. position? Right. And what I'm saying is that I can't speak to intelligence matters here live on camera with you. I can just say that we know from a lot of different sources, including open sources that are not classified, that this is a common right. practice of Hamas. So, so given that, uh, the reason I asked the question, of course, is how should Israel proceed with, with this hospital, given the fact that not only are there civilians in the, this hospital, but there are sick and injured civilians in this hospital? Well, Dan, I think your question just points up the difficulty and complexity of this conflict. You've got a terrorist group using civilians as human shields, even using sick and injured civilians as human shields. And you've got at the same time, an Israeli defense force that is seeking to try to root out this terrorist group uh, and to make sure that it can no longer represent a threat to Israel. And the hospital puts this question into stark relief 
But the bottom line for the United States is that we do not want to see firefights in a hospital. We do not want to see innocent patients who are sick or wounded uh, be injured or killed in the crossfire. So uh, that is how we look at this issue, and that is how we are communicating with our Israeli counterparts. Jake, there are still more than 200 hostages being held in Gaza, including a number of Americans. A senior U.S. official tells CNN that negotiators are working towards a deal to free a large number of hostages in exchange for a sustained, long pause in fighting. How close are you to a deal on that? And how many Americans does the administration believe are still being held by Hamas? Well, I don't want to predict how close we are because uh, I have thought we've been close before and we haven't quite gotten there. What I can say is there are active, intensive negotiations underway involving Israel, Qatar. The United States is engaged in those negotiations. Egypt and other countries are also engaged. And the goal here is to do what is necessary at the negotiating table to ensure that we get the safe return of all of the hostages, including the Americans. And uh, we currently have nine Americans who are missing, one green card holder who is missing. We don't know the status, uh, whether they are alive or whether they have passed away, but we are looking to get the safe recovery of all of those individuals. And we're staying in close touch with their families. In fact, I'll be meeting with the families of the American hostages this week. Let's look ahead to a uh, post-war situation. The administration, your administration, has warned that it would be a mistake for Israel to occupy Gaza, indicating that uh, the Biden administration thinks that the Palestinian Authority should take over after the war. Prime Minister Netanyahu says Israel will not accept a, quote, civilian authority there that educates its children to hate Israel and says that Israel will, will insist on full security control in Gaza. What's your response? Well, first, I think uh, the prime minister will have to speak to exactly what he meant by each of those comments. With respect to the full security control, I think he's made some clarifying comments. We've been very clear about our position, and, and you referenced it, which is there can be no reoccupation of Gaza. There can be no forcible displacement of the Palestinian people from Gaza, and there can be no reduction in the territory of Gaza. And also at the same time, Dana, Gaza can never be used again as a terrorist base from which to attack Israel. Those are our basic bottom lines. We've also said that we think that there should be unified political leadership across both the West Bank and Gaza. The Palestinian Authority is the political leadership in the West Bank. Over the long term, of course, the determination of how the West Bank and Gaza are governed will be up to the Palestinian people. Jake. I want to ask you before I let you go about a highly anticipated meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping this week in California. Uh, the president is big on believing that personal diplomacy and talks in person uh, can work, and he's gotten to know uh, President Xi very well over the years. Can the summit really reverse months of tension between the U.S. and China? Uh, and specifically, is it possible that the um, disintegration of communication between U.S. and Chinese military could be one thing that is restored after this? Well, it's a great question. First, you're right. President Biden believes there is no substitute for leader-to-leader -leader engagement face-to-face -to, -face to manage a complex relationship like the U.S.-China relationship. And that's what we're trying to do here. The U.S. and China are in competition. 
President Biden is trying to manage that competition responsibly so it doesn't tip over into conflict. And he's looking for areas where we can work together, where it's in our mutual interest to do so. When it comes to managing the relationship, ties and communications between our two militaries are critical. The Chinese have basically severed those communication links. President Biden would like to reestablish them, and he will look to this summit as an opportunity to try to advance the ball on that. I won't get ahead of any announcements that might come out of it, but this is a, a top agenda item. And he's also looking for other practical ways to show the American people that sitting down with Xi Jinping can defend American interests and also deliver progress on the priorities of the American people. Jake Sullivan, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Even on the debate stage, Republicans said their party had a bad week. I'll talk to the GOP chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, about the message voters sent on Tuesday. That's next. I am upset about what happened last night. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. For that matter, Ron, if you want to come on stage tonight, you want to look the GOP voters in the eye and tell them you resign, I will turn over my, yield my time to you. Welcome back to State of the Union. GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy going scorched earth during this week's GOP debate. And this weekend, he's back at it. He's now suggesting a candidate to replace Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel after another disappointing election night for Republicans on Tuesday. The RNC Chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, is here with me now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, he did double down, Vivek Ramaswamy. He tweeted that he wants an interim chair to take over until the next RNC meeting in January. Your response? Yeah, last I checked, I wasn't running for president. You know, he's at 4%. He's looking for headlines uh, I think what Republicans really want to hear from our candidates right now in terms of headlines is how are we going to take on Joe Biden? How are we going to take on the border, crime, fentanyl, restore our kids' education, what's happening with Israel? There are so many things that Republican voters, Democrat voters, independent voters want to hear from our candidates. So he can do that. That's, that's OK. But I will continue to say to everyone we should be taking on Democrats, not each other. This circular firing squad, this attacking other Republicans, like we saw with Kevin McCarthy, like we've been seeing over and over again, it is hurting us. And we have a, a map in 2024 where we can win the White House, take back the, the, the Senate and win the House. Personal attacks against you aside, if you look at what Republicans have, uh, have dealt with over the last few years, Republicans lost the White House in 2020, did not win the Senate back in 2022. The House has a Republican majority, but it's so narrow they can barely govern. And on Tuesday, on the state level, Republicans lost big in Virginia and in Kentucky. Are Republicans right to be frustrated? I understand being frustrated. Of course, we want to win. And I look at the RNC, though, and I'm proud of what we're doing. I mean, we're a turnout machine. We don't do the messaging the candidates do with their pollsters and their campaigns. But I look at our minority outreach that we're doing and the growth we've seen with Hispanic and Asian voters. I look at 2022. Republicans won the popular vote. We turned out four million more voters and we would have won the Electoral College. The RNC builds the road. All the candidates drive on it. You need a good candidate and a good road to get to your destination. And the things we're doing right now with our Bank Your Vote initiative and with 70 lawsuits that we're in, we just won, in, won one in New Hampshire that upholds voter ID on top of our engagement with minority communities. I'm really proud of what the RNC does. One of the big takeaways from this past Tuesday's election from the Democrats' point of view is that 
making abortion front and center in elections wins. And you said this week that, quote, our candidates have lost their messaging on abortion. What should Republicans' message be on abortion? You know, Dana, I have been talking about this with you. I've been on your show talking about this since 2022. I am a suburban woman. I get this. We actually put a memo out before the elections in 2022. It's up to the candidates if they take those suggestions. As I always say, you know, if I give my husband directions in the car, it doesn't mean he's going to take them, right? Um, But we have to talk about this. I'm going to point to a candidate in Virginia that did a fantastic job, Danny Diggs. He won a Senate race. He put his daughter in an ad, and she was compassionate. She understood women. She wasn't coming at them as criminals because they have different differences of opinion. And she articulated her dad's position. Which is? His position was we should have common sense limitations. I mean, why can't the Democrats come to that? Why can't they say, listen, we now know through science from 50 years ago, a baby feels pain as its life is being taken at 15 weeks. Can't you at least come here? Why are Democrats continuing well, to double down on 39 weeks, 38 weeks? Well, what is an abortion they're against? R- Rana, you know that there are most Democrats don't support but why don't they say until, it? until until the end. But and they don't and, that, say and that. if there is if something like that happens that far along, it means something is really wrong. Yeah, but that's and, and life you know of that. the mother, which is an exception. But there are states, five or six, that have it till thirty nine weeks. So yep. why don't you say, you know what, if we don't support that, let's come well, to this consensus position. Well, and that's what this candidate in Virginia did, and he did an excellent job and he if, won that race. So what you're saying is it's a little bit of a position uh, question, but it's also a message problem. But if you look at the actual results on Tuesday, just take Ohio, which is effectively a red state right now. It wasn't a message problem. It was a policy problem. People voted overwhelmingly to allow abortion rights. They wanted it embedded in the Constitution. I think there was a, a message problem. The way that bill was framed was like, disingenuous to the voters. And there's a spending issue. This has galvanized money on the left. It was a two-to-one ratio in Ohio of spending. In Virginia, Democrats spent nine times more on abortion ads than Republicans. My point is, as Republicans, we cannot let Democrats fearmonger on this issue. We, of course, want life-saving care for miscarriages. We support life-saving care for ectopic pregnancies and IVF. And they are going on TV and using Roe to scare people and misrepresent Republicans on this issue. And I think our candidates have to get out in front of it. Well, also, when you talk about what went on in Ohio, that it was misrepresented, you could argue that the Republicans misrepresented it, too, by saying uh, that there were uh, rules on that uh, measure that weren't actually there. But on just the bigger picture, are you saying that you believe it is a messaging problem. You don't believe Republicans have a problem with the overall policy that over and over again, not just public opinion polls, but actual votes, seven states have voted overwhelmingly, including very red states, to allow for abortion rights. So why aren't Republicans just looking at that and saying, we're just on the wrong side of this policy-wise? I think common sense limitations is where the country is. I do. I think most Americans do think that there should be a limitation when you know a baby feels pain as you're taking its life at 15 weeks. I think that's where where Republicans are saying this. They're saying this is a consensus position. You're seeing many of the candidates for president saying that. And they're welcoming the Democrats. Why don't you meet us here? It is a personal issue. So just one last question on this. You're saying 15 weeks. 
There are candidates who are running for president who say six weeks. Is that too far? I, there's candidates who are doing different things in their states, and that's what their state will allow. But I think everybody's saying to the Democrats, listen, I'm pro-life. I'm proud to be pro-life. But how about you come meet us? What about a here? federal ban? I, I, that's a policy issue, and that's going to be up to the politicians to decide that. I don't think that you can just say it's a state's issue. I think we're going to have to talk okay. about this. Uh, former President Trump, who is the far and away front runner, uh, said in a what was supposed to be a Veterans Day message, quote, in honor of our great veterans on Veterans Day, we pledge to you that we will root out the communist, Marxist, fascist and radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. And then he went on. I mean, vermin in a Veterans Day message. How is that different from the now infamous deplorables comment that Hillary Clinton made. I'm not going to talk about candidates that are in a contested primary. That's you can talk but, to well, him about that? what he's saying. You can talk to him about what he's saying. I, I haven't seen the whole speech, but no, what I will a, say is, it was a post is, on social media. You know, obviously we support our veterans, and we're in a primary right now, and the RNC is doing our best to make sure we're getting um, our candidates' visibility as we are taking on Biden. And this is what I hear every day, Dana. People can't afford groceries. They can't afford to fill their car up with gas. They think this country is on the wrong track. They want to see our party fight for them, and they want to see us win in November. If those are the issues, if you end up having Donald Trump as your nominee and if he is convicted of a crime, do you believe that he would be the appropriate nominee for the Republican Party? Whoever the voters choose is the appropriate nominee. Even if, even if he's a convicted criminal? I know this is newsworthy, but as party chair, I'm going to support who the voters choose. And yes, if they choose Donald Trump, the voters are looking at this and they think there is a two-tiered system of justice. They don't believe a lot of the things that are coming out in this, and they're making these decisions, and you're seeing that reflected in the polls. Before we go, uh, there's another presidential debate coming yes. up. Given where we are with Donald Trump, again, far and ahead in every single poll and every single state, do you still see value in presidential debates with the candidates who make the stage? I do. And I actually think some of the things we've done with this debate process have been very instrumental. We started with 14 candidates. In 2015, going into Iowa, there were still two, two stages. There were still 10 candidates in that race. We're now down to five on the debate stage with stricter polling criteria and small dollar uh, donor limits. I think that's been good. It's also helping us engage our volunteers. We've signed up 30,000 through these debates. So will you have debates, commit to debates through the first two nominating contests, Iowa? New we're York? taking debate at a time, and we're going to continue to evaluate. Ronna, thank Ronna McDaniel, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Up next, is Joe Manchin going to run for president? And could my next guest join him on the ticket? Larry Hogan and David Axelrod. He's not the one who would be on the ticket. They will join me after a quick break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. How adorable. <laughs> they actually think they've got a chance. Sad in some ways, but in other ways, funny. Can you believe it, folks? 91 indictments, four trials, and I'm still the best choice. <laughs> 
SNL treatment there. Here with me now to talk about a huge political week, former Obama senior advisor David Axelrod and former Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. Thanks to both of you for being here. Governor Hogan, I'll start with you. Uh, the senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, seems to be eyeing the possibility of joining the No Labels Unity ticket. What do you think about that as somebody who was involved with No Labels? And might you join him? Well, Joe's been involved in No Labels for a long time. Um, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for him. And I, you know, I think this was a tough decision for him. Uh, but I think he made the right decision after looking at, uh, you know, the, the possibility of, of not winning a uh, re-election in West Virginia. I'm not sure whether, you know, look, one thing Joe Manchin's pretty good at is, uh, you know, staying in the center of attention. And uh, he definitely wants to continue, like I do, uh, continue to be a part of the discussion. But I'm not sure wh whether all of this hype this week is going to turn into a presidential campaign or not, frankly. Should it? Look, I, I think that, uh, you know, that we've got two really weak potential nominees. And uh, uh, frankly, I keep saying uh, that, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that we can uh, nominate the Republican Party, can nominate someone other than Donald Trump. And uh, that's what I'm working toward. And, and quite frankly, I, I agree with David Axelrod that maybe I probably will go further than him and say that uh, Joe Biden... Uh, is, pro is not the strongest nominee for the Democrats, that it's probably in his best interest and his families and the parties and the countries if he were to step aside. David? He did go farther than me. What I said was that he ought to think about it. And he ought to, he ought to think about it only because uh, there are certain... I, I have no concerns about polls a year out. I mean, you have to look at them and uh, analyze them and adjust. And, but I was in a situation as a strategist for Barack Obama uh, in 2011 where we were facing some difficult polls. The one uh, number in the polling that was concerning uh, and in the CNN poll uh, that followed after the New York Times poll had to do with age. And that's one thing you can't uh, reverse. Yeah. And no matter how effective Joe Biden is behind the scenes, uh, in front of the camera, what he's projecting is uh, causing people concerns, yeah. and, and that, that's worrisome. But, but listen, if Larry, Larry's working hard to get a different nominee than Donald Trump, he's got to work harder. Uh, because, uh, yeah, well, because that's right true. now, it, it, the, <laughs> the high likelihood is that he's going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. Yeah. And, and it's uh, look, there are about 70 percent of the people in America that do not want Joe Biden or uh, Donald Trump to be president. And I think that's why you're seeing all of these other potentials. It's why there are currently three other Democrats who are already running uh, against Biden in the general election. Uh, and, uh, you know, now we're talking about potentially having a fourth. But uh, there, there are an awful lot of people that just are looking for some other alternative. And I think, um, you know, it's, we're a long way off from Super Tuesday, but yeah. I really, uh, I, I think we don't know what it's going to well, look like. One of my concerns, uh, Dana and Larry, is that this isn't a normal election. Uh, and notwithstanding what I said about Joe Biden, because uh, I think he's done some extraordinary things as president and has a record to run on. Uh, but on the other side is Donald Trump. And he's not a normal candidate, and the stakes are not normal stakes. This is not a choice between people with differing philosophies. Well, this is a choice between a candidate who believes well, but, in so democracy and a candidate who, who, who does not. But, but David, so, so I worry about this third... In, in, Larry, in let me spite just of that, though, I worry about the third party. Yeah. 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 
Go, well, go ahead, in spite Larry. of that, though, uh, Joe Biden is losing nearly in every single poll in every single key state. And you currently have uh, a, a Democrat, uh, Kennedy, pulling 22 to 24 percent of the well, vote. I want to so get in there. It's not really about uh, what uh, uh, no labels might be. Let me get in there on this. West, you got Jill Stein. Let's give Dana a word. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yes, I want to just follow Dana. up to what, to what both of you are talking about, but what you started to say, David, about you're clearly concerned about a third party run and how much that would hurt Joe yeah. Biden and, and help Donald Trump if he is the nominee. Before that even uh, happens, there is another threat uh, inside the Democratic Party. I'm not saying that Joe Biden has any real threat to to lose the nomination at this point. But I just want you to listen to what Minnesota Congressman and Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips, who is now running, as I mentioned, told Casey Hunt in New Hampshire. Bidenomics is not working. I respect the president. I want to make it very clear. He's a good man. He saved our country. I think in 2020, he was probably the only Democrat who could have beaten Donald Trump. And I think in 2024, he may be among the only ones that will lose to him. Does he have a point? Well, well look, I agree first with of all, that completely. The odd thing about what he, the, odd, the, odd, the odd thing about what he was saying is that he supported almost everything that Joe Biden has done in the Congress. So um, I don't know if he's that's a sort of a self indictment. Look, I, I said what I said. I think that uh, the, there, there's one issue that is is hanging uh, over him. The, the country's in a sour mood, no doubt about it. It's hard to be an incumbent, and it's been in a sour mood uh, since before he was elected. There are concerns about inflation. That's a problem. Those can be overcome, and I think uh, with Donald Trump on the other end, he can still win this election. But the age issue is is difficult. And uh, so and Phillips is trying to exploit that. I believe Joe Biden's going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. And uh, right now, you, you are getting to the third party uh, point. Uh, my concern is that Joe, uh, that Donald Trump has a high floor and a low ceiling. And you throw a bunch of third party candidates in there and you are making it much more likely that he wins the election. And, Governor, talk to that, because I don't know that there are many Republicans who dislike Donald Trump uh, more than you do. Would you do anything uh, to (laughs) get a a candidate, if it's yourself or somebody else, into the race that would effectively give the presidency back to Donald Trump? Look, I have no no desire whatsoever to enable Donald Trump. I'm doing everything I possibly can to stop Donald Trump. But again, I'll reiterate what I said earlier. Uh, we're not we're talking about a third party and what Joe Manchin or I or others might do. There are already three candidates running in the general election as independents, and they're all Democrats. So um, it, I don't know why all the focus is on no labels. There's a guy right now getting 22 percent. That's a Democrat that he ought to be concerned. Yeah, about. all the folk. Yeah, all the focus isn't there. But just my question is, would you want to add to that? No, I think uh, Joe Manchin and I and others have said over and over and over again that we would not do this to be a spoiler. We'd only be in it to win it. All right. Thanks to you both. Appreciate it. Nice, lively discussion. Good to see you, Dana. Thank you. See you, Larry. And I've been looking into a frightening explosion in anti-Semitism, especially on college campuses, including a violent incident involving two students at Tulane University. Violence erupted when a pro-Palestinian demonstrator in the back of a pickup truck started to light an Israeli flag on fire. A student on the Jewish side, he ran 
and he tried to get back the flag to save it from being burned. There were two kids in the back of the truck. One was holding the Israeli flag and one was holding a Palestinian flag on a very large pole. Once the Jewish student was able to retrieve the flag back, he started getting bashed over the head repeatedly with that pole. And when I saw that, that's um, when I ran in, I was trying to just get him out of the situation. Then Dylan was beaten and attacked by two older men he says were not college-aged. I was completely blindsided by a man with a megaphone who hit me very viciously over the nose, which broke my nose. I went into complete shock. I went, I, you know, I went deaf for a couple seconds. It, like, I seemed like I went blind maybe for a second. Be sure to tune in to my hour-long special tonight on anti-Semitism in America, where I examine not only the what is happening, but the why. It's the whole story with Anderson Cooper. It airs tonight at 9 p.m. Thank you so much for watching this Sunday morning with us. Fareed Zakaria will talk to the UN Secretary General about the situation in the Middle East next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.